The second lesson is from the book of Hebrews, beginning in the 10th chapter. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, Sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I've invited you on this journey before, but I invite you again to go back in time with me to when The Matrix was a good movie. Before they made it into a trilogy and ruined everything, it was back when we could all agree that Keanu Reeves' method of acting, which I think is vaguely stoned confusion, (laughs) finally worked for him in the role of Neo, right? Do you remember the trailer and it was just all black? What is the Matrix? And then the movie starts and we're waiting and we're waiting. We finally get to that scene where we learn, along with Neo from Morpheus, that the Matrix is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over our eyes to blind us to the truth. Neo is, of course, offered a glimpse of reality, one that he will find disorienting, almost disturbing, but it's this thirst for what is real and what is true that will eventually keep dragging him into this, to see the reality, to see the truth behind the lie. This is, I think, a crude but accurate analogy for what is happening to us in the gathered liturgy, in the Eucharist liturgy. We are able to see the reality of the world, even if it's disorienting. It's in some ways almost disorienting by design because we've become so accustomed to seeing the lie. The reality of the world is that God is so completely and beautifully unique, so utterly other, so glorious and powerful that our whole lives are to be lived in worshipful response to him, to his beauty and his holiness. 
To worship God is to have been made alive in his presence, and it is this gift that God seeks to give to all people. Right? We say this over and over, that his desire for all people is that they would live a life hidden with Christ in him. And for the last several weeks, we've been doing something that we don't normally do here. We've been doing a sermon series, and we've been building this understanding about what worship really is. And we've gone from the beginning in Genesis and through the Old Testament and seen how worship always requires sacrifice. Ever since humanity's rebellion, worship has always required sacrifice, and how all of the sacrificial system of the entire Old Testament points to Christ as the heavenly tabernacle, Christ as the true sacrificial lamb, Christ as the great high priest. Christ is the place of God's presence. As we've been seeing, worship is our holistic response to the holiness and glory of God. It is a consuming response to his uniqueness and power that should take over all aspects of our lives. But as we've been saying all along, we have a a problem because in our rebellion and brokenness, we are unable to worship truly. We are unable to offer perfect worship. And as such, no man may see God and live. And so we're caught between needing to be in his presence to be made alive and yet being consumed because of our sin once we're there. Last week we saw that Jesus alone has offered true and perfect worship to the Father. In his sinless life and in his perfect sacrifice, it was him alone who entered the heavenly holy of holies, not the earthly copy, but the real thing, bearing the priceless blood of his own sacrifice. This is the theological underpinning for all of Christian worship. This idea that it is Christ alone who has offered true and perfect sacrifice, and it is the basis for everything that is going on in the Eucharist liturgy of the church. Jesus alone spent every moment of his earthly life attending in worshipful adoration to his Father. And in being the only perfect human being, He offered the only perfect sacrifice. As the Son of God, his blood was priceless and has the power to undo the entire curse. The good news of the gospel is that through faith and baptism, we can be brought into the perfect life and perfectly atoning sacrifice of Christ. That's the gospel. He does it all and we get to benefit. To be brought into the life of God through faith and the sacraments is all the work of God the Holy Spirit, as the writer of Hebrews tells us in our lesson this evening. It is the Spirit who testifies to us of the work that is no longer simply outward. And the writer of the Hebrews goes on to quote from Jeremiah 31. If you haven't read Jeremiah 31 in a while, go and do it. It is a breathtaking prophecy of the new covenant covenant that was to come, one which we, if you've grown up in the church, have grown up with all of your life, and I fear we often take it for granted. We're going to spend some time next week considering the work of the Spirit and the internal nature of worship. But as I wrote in your series guide in the beginning of your order of worship, the holistic response of worship is always more than physical, which is what Jeremiah 31 is pointing to. It's pointing to having a new heart being put inside of you having God's laws written in your heart and in your mind. It is always more than just physical, but it is never less. Never less. It is always more than the rituals that are used to express worship, but it is never less, meaning there is an irreducibility of worship. The rituals of worship speak to a deeper reality, but they cannot just be tossed aside. 
That's as ludicrous as saying, I still love my wife, but I don't really need to kiss her anymore. It's just a ritual. It's just a physical manifestation of the reality that's inside of me. How do you think that would work? Terribly. So this evening, we're going to consider how the rituals, how our work, which is what the word liturgy means, the work of the people, how our work together as God's people in this place, gathered around the Eucharist feast, reveals and gives shape to our participation in Christ. Okay? If you'll recall, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Leviticus 16 and the atonement ritual that Aaron and his successors were to enact every year. And we said that when Aaron the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sacrifice, he isn't just entering as Aaron. He isn't just entering as the head of his family. He is entering as Israel. And he is coming into God's presence as Israel, bearing the blood of the sacrifice of those bulls and goats, which also represents the life of Israel. It's all connected. It's all representative. The sacrifice and worship has always been a participatory one. So the, the question we're essentially answering this evening is, how does this carry over into the new covenant? How is it that we can be brought into the perfect once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, his once-for-all entrance into the Holy of Holies, his perfect worship? How can you and I be brought into that? As I said, it's, it's a work of the Spirit. We're going to talk about that next week. Come back, okay? If you've been around here for any length of time, though, you've no doubt heard me say what I already said once this sermon. God's greatest desire for all people is that they would live a life hidden with Christ in him. If you're a good student of the New Testament, then you, know, uh, you no doubt know that I'm partially quoting from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. But what does Paul say right before he says, live a life hidden with Christ in God? He tells this new church, for you have died. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And what he means by this is more plainly seen in his letter to the Romans when he says that, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's telling them that in entering into baptism, they have entered into the death of Christ somehow. His perfect sacrifice is now being part of them. And so this evening, I want to just sort of go through the rituals that we do in the Eucharist liturgy and show you how they are a participation in the work of Christ. So if you're visiting with us for the first time, I'm sorry, you're catching us in the middle of a sermon series that has been like a fire hose for the last five weeks. But also, it's a great time to be here because I'm going to sort of unpack some things that people that have been going here for months may have never heard me say. When you enter into the nave, which is the room you're sitting in right now, you have passed through a liminal space. You, you are leaving one world and you are entering another world. You are leaving behind the kingdom of darkness and you are entering into the kingdom of God. You are leaving behind the time of the world and you are entering into the eternal presence of God. Okay? And as you do so, you pass by the baptismal font. And many of us will dip our finger in that, in that water and make the sign of the cross. And that brief little ritual of dipping your finger in the baptismal water and signing yourself with the cross is essentially saying what it has taken me five weeks to fumble around and say in that one moment, which is that if we were to enter into the presence of the holy God on our own, we would be consumed. 
Our life is required of us as a sacrifice in his presence. In signing ourselves with the cross, with the waters of baptism, we are recalling our baptismal participation in Christ's sacrifice. Is that works? No, because you can't baptize yourself. It's a gift. It's given to the church. What we are saying with our bodies is that it is only by the perfect and priceless blood of Christ that we are able to enter here. And we enter here as people who have died. That has all sorts of implications for how we relate to one another, how we relate to God, how we relate to the world out there. We enter as people who have died and whose lives have been hidden with Christ in God. Just as the tabernacle and the temple were sprinkled with water and blood, so we, as the temple of God, are sprinkled with the waters of baptism, being united with Christ in his atoning death. We are entering into his perfect sacrifice offered. And then we process, right? I don't just start up here. We process in because as we read in Hebrews this evening, we are told to draw near. We are in some sense leaving the world and the world's time and entering into the throne room of God and his eternal present, which we're going to talk about more in a moment. But we don't just begin here. We, we enter. We've been called to this place. We've been called out of the kingdom of darkness and into his marvelous light, which has meaning, right? It's the light of his presence. It's the light of his glory that faded from Moses and caused Moses to wear a veil over his face. But we... What? We with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being changed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Stop. Can you imagine? Our reading from Exodus is so incredible to me. Can you think of this nomadic people and just the pain of camping day after day for weeks and months and years. And yet, Moses sets up this tent of meeting, this place where God will dwell with his people. And when he goes there, every person comes out of their tent every single time and they stand and the verb worship means they bow. This has been happening for a long time. Glory is the manifestation of God's power, his beauty, his utter uniqueness and holiness. And through baptism, we are now not only beholding his glory without being struck dead, we are doing it with unveiled faces and we are being transformed into that same image. It's incredible. This is something Old Testament saints could scarcely even dream about. What could that mean? The answer is, I don't know. It's incredible. We have been brought here, and so we process, we draw near. And then we begin the liturgy by speaking of our destination. We say, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom, now and forever. As Father Schmemann said, the liturgy is the journey of the church into the dimension of the kingdom. We're leaving a place, and we're entering another place. And he says also that this is the place where we see the world more truly, more perfectly. The kingdom is the place of God's dwelling, right? A kingdom is where the power of the king exists. It's his place. It's so united with him that it's almost like it's him. 
It's his presence that will one day be all in all, covering the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. And this is where we have got to stop reading the New Testament through the lens of poetic metaphor and instead through the lens of sacramental reality. We are the temple of the Spirit. We are the body of Christ. This is not a word picture. This is reality. This is a sacramental reality that we are being brought into in the liturgy. What that means is that we are participating in the kingdom work of God because we are participants in his very life. To be in his kingdom is to be in him. To be his temple, to be his body. And that's why we sing. The sacrifice of praise is laced throughout the entire liturgy because every movement we have to sort of stop you know, the ancients say that he who sings prays twice. We have to sort of get out of our regular mode of just talking about it and actually sing out praises because of the wonderful news that we can be brought in and drawn near. And then we hear God's word declared, the sword that the Spirit uses to cut and pierce. We pray a psalm together in the midst of the liturgy of the word. And the psalms have always been the prayer book of the church because the psalms are messianic. They are on the lips of Christ almost constantly throughout his ministry, so much so that even in his deliriousness of death, he is still quoting them. His default, when he can't even figure out where he is as he's dying, is to speak the words of the Psalms. We are his body, therefore we pray his words after him in praying the Psalms. That's what we're doing. Oftentimes the Psalms don't apply to us as individuals. They apply to the church as a whole because they apply to Christ. And then we hear the gospel proclaimed from the center of our midst. And we do it from the center because in that proclamation, we are hearing the voice of Christ himself speaking to his church, and we are reminded that we cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the question that we have to always ask ourselves is, where else could we go? You have the words of life. And often in the gospel reading, we are reminded in some way that we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God, which is the only way to make sense of things like blessed are the meek and the poor and the sorrowful and the persecuted and things like I am the vine, you are the branches. Your life is inextricably linked with Christ. And as the gospel is proclaimed, we sign ourselves again with the cross praying with our bodies that Christ's words may rule our minds, our lips, and our hearts. Even in the Old Testament worship, the leaders of the congregation would then expound on what the sacrifices that were happening in the tabernacle and the temple meant for the people of God. They would give some sort of explanation so that the people would hopefully understand that they were the ones on the altar. It was them giving their life to God in every moment. And to this day, if the Eucharist is celebrated, there is a word spoken about what the sacrifice of Christ means for God's people. This is the core substance of all Christian preaching. There is no getting away from talking about Christ and him crucified. And even in this moment, which is the moment that we're engaging in right now, We are here together participating in the work of the Spirit. This isn't my work, this is our work. 
We are each one of us called by the psalmist to the same task, for we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. If you say the Venite every day, you know how it ends. Oh, that today you would hearken to his voice. That's what we're all being called to. We hear the voice of our shepherd, we respond. And then we declare our belief together using the words of the church, the keeper of the apostolic message of Christ. We use the creeds. This is not so much a doctrinal checklist as it is a pledge of allegiance. From the time of Abraham, righteousness has been credited to broken, sinful people because of what they believe, because of faith. This is our declaration that the triune God has done all things for us, has given us all things in Christ. It's not a study guide, though the doctrinal points are incredibly important. It is rather a sure foundation upon which your life will be built. This is the place where you should put all of your weight, resting on what God has done, trusting that Christ is who he says he is, that he is God from God, light from light, that he is the revelation of the Father and the Spirit-filled man who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. Don't trust in your bank account. Don't trust in your cars. Don't trust in your career or the people that, think that, that love you today. This is the thing that your life is built upon. That Christ is who he says he is. So we say the creed every week to remind ourselves of where our trust is. And then we move on to the prayers of the people, which is the heart of our vocation as a kingdom of priests. We are entering into the throne room of God, having left the kingdom of this world, not so that we can be taken out of the world, but so that we can bring the world into the joy of God's presence. If you recall, when I talked about Aaron going into the Holy of Holies as Israel, I also mentioned that Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. Therefore, Aaron is not just going there as Israel. He's going there as the entire world. That's what we're doing here. We, we, we are priesting God's world to him and God to the world. That's what we're called to do. And so we intercede on behalf of the world. We plead that all people would be reconciled to God in Christ. And we do this not as moral scolds, but as those who have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him to newness of life. There's no looking down your nose at anybody else when you got here because you died. And then we confess our sin. We confess our brokenness, that we have not attained to true worship, but have instead worshipped ourselves and our own desires. And we are given absolution in the name of Christ and in the sign of his cross. And again, we pray with our bodies, making the sign of his cross the manifestation of our absolution and forgiveness. It is only in the cross of Christ that we find peace with God, that we get forgiveness. We have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. That's what that means. And then we pass his peace to one another signifying that our relationships have been forever altered. No longer do we simply consort with our own social class or ethnic group because none of the markers of this world make any sense here. There's only one. Can you guess what it is? You have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. There's a, there's a theologian who's been studying uh, the early church and how, how the church was able to go from this fragile, martyred thing to basically turn the entire Roman Empire upside down. And the thing that he comes back to over and over again is the way that their bodies behaved as they were being martyred. Do you know what their bodies were doing as they were being martyred? 
There were slave and free women next to each other being eaten alive by beasts, and they were kissing each other with passing of the peace. Their bodies had memorized what it was to worship to the point that as they are being torn apart, that's what they're doing. There's only one marker in Christ. It's baptism. It's having died and been made alive again. And here's where the last several weeks really need to hum in our heads because we enter with our offerings. And we bring bread and wine and money and other gifts to the altar, to the table of Christ. And the offerings and gifts of God's people in worship are always, always a response to his goodness to us. We have been ransomed by him. We have been redeemed by him, bought back out of slavery and brought into freedom and life in him. In Israel's worship, the tithe wasn't actually a straight 10%. Most uh, scholars calculate it somewhere between 22% and 30% annually. The average Jewish family was giving about that much. And that doesn't even include the sacrifices for sin and atonement. The tithes were used to pay the priests, but they were also used to purchase party supplies in Jerusalem to come and feast in celebration of God's goodness. And they were used to provide for the poor. Now, next week, we're having a, a little parish meeting. We're going to talk about what's coming up for us as a parish. We're going to talk about buildings and staff and children's ministry, and those are all incredible things. I'm super excited about what God is doing in our midst, but that is not what we are giving to in worship at all. We are giving to God because we love him, because we are overwhelmed by his goodness and love toward us, and we want to show in any way we can how thankful we are for what he has done for us. We understand that our lives are not our own, for we have died. You can say it. And our life is now hidden with Christ and God. And so we give, and we give, and we give, and that brings us to the Eucharist. Eucharist means thanksgiving. We're here to make thanksgiving. That's it. And in a moment, as I go to the altar and bless the gifts of our thanksgiving, what do we say? We say, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Not a metaphor. It is not a metaphor. It is a sacramental reality. We are being lifted into the holy of holies. We are being brought into God's eternal present. Worship always requires sacrifice. Christ has been sacrificed once for all for the forgiveness of sins, but in the Eucharist, we are brought into the eternal present of that sacrifice, and we ourselves are being offered on the altar as we are in union with Christ. We have died, and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Now listen, we're almost done. I realize I've gone a little bit longer. Sorry. Look, I grew up in fundamentalism. I know what it sounds like when I say, you got to be in church on Sunday, guys. All the preachers I ever heard say it always used this verse from Hebrews. Did you hear it? Did you hear it tonight? Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. The great thing about hearing that in a fundamentalist context is that if you're there hearing it, then you feel better about yourself because there's all those other people that have given up meeting together, Right? But if you weren't there and you hear about it later, then you're kind of like the, the guilt's double for that week and you feel like even more of a failure, like you've somehow disappointed your mom or something. There is no such do-goodery at play here. There is no finger-wagging. This is about living in reality. 
It's about being brought into life in God's presence. It's about participating in Christ. The end ritual of all worship throughout the scripture has always been sitting down and eating and drinking in the presence of God. And the telos of the entire world, the goal, the the train station that we're all headed toward is a wedding banquet at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Eucharist liturgy is an objective, actual, real, I couldn't think of any other synonyms, participation in that feast. We are feasting on Christ himself. And I was going to tell you about how the early church believed that those who were voluntarily absent from the Eucharist liturgy had essentially excommunicated themselves. But instead, I, I, I want to tell you this. See, I, did. I just snuck it in there anyway. I was at a wedding last night. And I got to thinking today, can you imagine if that bride the night before had said, I know my lines. I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this guy. I don't really need to go to the rehearsal dinner. I'm just not going to show up. How does that feel? Does that seem like that's going to be a healthy marriage? Does it seem like she really understands what she's getting herself into? If you were in Christ then you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And therefore, it is is as obvious as a bride going to her rehearsal dinner that you would be here praising him and joining your voice with angels and archangels who are forever singing the hymn of praise of his holiness. That you would be here in God's throne room to be sanctified, that you also may be filled with his Holy Spirit and manifest his presence and power in the world. You have been designed to be made alive doing the one thing that you cannot do on your own, which is worship God perfectly. But you have been invited to be made alive in Christ and brought into his perfect worship and to participate in his once-for-all perfect sacrifice. And the response to that invitation is always, therefore, Heavenly Father, as we joyfully proclaim our Lord's life, death, and resurrection, we offer ourselves, our souls, and bodies as a living sacrifice. It's always right there. To be here is to be caught up into the life-giving presence of God. It is to be invited to come and feast on the Paschal Lamb of Christ himself. It is to enter a different dimension entirely. I'll let St. Paul in his letter to the Colossians have the last word. Since then... You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Lift up your hearts. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. 
be Eucharist people. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks, making Eucharist to God the Father through him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.